We're continuing the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Context is so important for everything, and so I want to give you the, the setting of, of what we see. Jesus' crucifixion is perhaps six months away. As we get uh, just a few more verses, the, the next passage or two in a couple of weeks, uh, verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is now going to become a regular topic of conversation. As the chapter opened, a group of Pharisees and Sadducees came and tested him. They tried to trick him and gain something that they could use against him. They'd asked him for some special sign, uh, and he refused them. He said the only sign that they would get would be the sign of Jonah, which is a sign of his vindication and God's judgment upon them. The odd thing about the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that they, uh, they primarily looked down on one another and despised one another. You, you couldn't get more, uh, more separated and distinct. The, the equivalent in our time would probably be right-wing, left-wing politics right now in our country. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were able to come together, though, and agree on one thing, and that was their hatred of Jesus. Probably the only time that they ever cooperated. And so Jesus, in the aftermath of that conversation with them, his disciples come to him, beginning at verse 5. We read, coming to the other side of the sea, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, they began to discuss them among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000, and how many large baskets full you picked up then? How is it that you don't understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Working, the, working our way through this passage, it's, it's very simple. It's actually an extremely brief passage to read, and it's very easy to understand. Uh, what's for lunch? What's for lunch? Jesus' disciples didn't bring any bread with them, and they begin discussing that. Jesus turns and warns them about the, Pharisee, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the leaven. They assume he's talking about food. Jesus reproves them for their little faith. Can I just there say there, little faith is not weak faith. It's not broken faith. It's not partial faith. Little faith is small faith. All faith is small when it starts. It grows through suffering and trials. Your faith is small. You're not paying attention. And he reminds them historically, I just fed 5,000. You picked up a bunch of baskets. I just fed 4,000. You picked up a bunch of baskets. Don't you understand? We can eat whenever I decide we eat. 
command these stones be made bread so that you could eat. Jesus could actually do that. If you can change, if you can multiply fish and bread into enough for thousands, and if you can change water to wine, you can change stones to bread. They never had to worry about going hungry. It actually reminds me of what he says at the end of Matthew chapter 6. Don't worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Stop worrying about that. Don't worry about the food and the clothing and and all of that. Frankly, don't worry about the healing. Take those needs to the Lord and trust him and get on with what he's commanded you to do. He knows what you need. You don't need need to name what you need. You don't need to be specific. You don't have to tick it down. You don't have to subdivide it. You certainly don't need to tell God how to do things. We love to do that in prayer. Lord, reach into his body and touch that. It's like, yeah, he knows how to do it if he chooses to do it. He can figure that out. The point of prayer is us going and saying, I submit to you in your will. And I trust you to strengthen me as I follow you through this. Now, context matters. I say that all the time. Frequently, context matters. The context of their conversation was food. Jesus says that they need to beware of leaven, and they assume he's talking about food. It it really kind of makes sense. But spiritual maturity matters, too. And they should have known that he wasn't talking about food. He was talking about something more important. Their naivete, their, their cluelessness, if I can put it that way, is part of the danger. It's part of the reason they have to be warned. You guys are kind of clueless. And if you don't pay attention, the, 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 the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees will infect you. And it will begin multiplying within you. And you won't even know until it's already done its damage. Don't be clueless. That cluelessness they had, their their naivete left them open to misunderstanding Jesus' words, and it left them open and vulnerable to false teaching and false teachers. They needed to think biblically and spiritually. They needed to keep in mind Jesus' power, what he's already demonstrated. And I love the fact that in verse 11 at the end, he just repeats it. Maybe he was more slow this time. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Ah, and then they understood that he wasn't talking about bread. He was talking about their teaching. You see what he does there? He doesn't interpret it for them. He makes them think through it and work it out. They've grown enough to be able to do that. So to understand Jesus' point, we need to watch out for spiritual leaven that's the heart of this i want to talk about leaven and spiritual leaven i want to talk about jesus command to be wary and watchful we're going to talk about some biblical examples of churches that failed to watch out and the consequences there we're going to talk about a couple of examples of biblical churches that did watch out and the results and then we're going to talk about what it means for us today that's our game plan So to begin with leaven, your Bible might say yeast. The word is not yeast. The word is leaven. Yeast, as we think about it, the dry stuff you get in the bottle, first began to be marketed in 1916. 
It wasn't until the mid or late 1800s that you could go buy yeast. It just had not been separated out. Everything up to that point was leaven. Leaven is dough that has been fermented by yeast, but they didn't add yeast to it, and you don't have to add yeast today. If you want to make sourdough and you don't have leaven, which is what we, we, we use the word starter, not leaven, but starter is leaven. That's what it is. If you want to make sourdough, what do you do? You take some bread or some, some dough and you mix it into some warm water. You put in a little sugar. You could put in yeast if you want to, but you can just leave it open and put it up on the windowsill of your kitchen and stir it every couple days. It'll pick up yeast from the air and begin to ferment. And then when you bake it, you're going to keep a little back, and you're going to bake it, and the next time you make dough, you're just going to mix it in and let it rise, and it will continue to do that. I don't know if you've ever heard of San Francisco Francisco sourdough. There's a a brand, San Francisco sourdough. I I can't remember the name of the maker off the top of my head, but it's just San Francisco sourdough. It's awesome stuff. They've... They've had a continuous line of starters since like the 1850s. It's never died. They just keep, every day they just add to it and they save some aside and they bake the rest. Jesus obviously isn't talking about spiritual or about physical starter. He's talking about spiritual leaven. He says the leaven, or they understand that the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is their teaching. Now remember, I'd, I'd talked about the fact that the Pharisees and Sadducees really had nothing in common except for being Jews and hating Jesus. So when Jesus uses the word teaching singular, what is it about their teaching that both would have in common that are dangerous? It's not just something that they teach, it's the result of their teaching. And I think the result of their teaching is two things, skepticism that leads to a rejection of the word and pride that leads them to self-righteousness. The rejection of the word is also the rejection of Jesus. Now we see that later on the church in Galatia was not careful about this. In Galatians 1, Paul says, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. So what was going on in Galatia? Well, they had the true gospel. And then Judaizers infiltrated them. And they said, men, you're Gentiles. You cannot be Christians unless you've been circumcised. And the Galatian church, that leaven of false teaching began to spread and it began to impact and it became widespread through the Galatian church. And Paul found out about it and he just came unspooled. These are some of the strongest words he ever speaks in the gospel. Now I want you to understand this. These men came and said, everything that you've heard about the gospel is absolutely sound, absolutely true, absolutely trustworthy. You just need to be circumcised first. A one-time event. It's not repeated. It's not comfortable, but it's not deadly. 
A few days of recovery, you get on with your life, it's like it never happened, and now you have the full gospel. Now you have everything, and you just go on following Christ. Paul says that's a false gospel. If you add just one thing to the gospel, you've now preached a false gospel. I remember hearing an evangelist years ago when I was a brand new Christian, a teenager, I was at a concert. He urged people to come forward if they wanted to receive Christ. And he said, Jesus said, if you will not acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge you before my father. And what he did is he said, if you won't come forward publicly, you can't be a Christian. That's a false gospel. And the person who says, I went forward, we've heard that language, right? I went forward. What saved you? I went forward. What saved you? I signed the card. What saved you? I lifted my hand. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. We've heard that. That's a false gospel. If you'll just pray these words, false gospel. How do you know you're a Christian? I prayed the words. No. You know you're a Christian because God had mercy on you and he caused you to be born again. And you know that because you've got this faith in him that won't go away. People suffer. The grayer the hair, the older the skin, the more suffering. Some are experiencing excruciating suffering over the course of their lives. And yet their faith goes on. The first time you're not sure. The first time you think, I don't know what I'm going to do. And you wake up the next morning and you reach out for the Lord. And the next crisis that comes along, you don't wake up and think, I don't know what I'm going to do. You say, he's holding me. That's this life. That's how you know that you're in Christ. That's how you know, not because you were circumcised. Other sorts of spiritual leaven were embraced by New Testament churches to their harm. I want to give you five examples of that from Revelation 2 and 3, and we're moving through this really quickly, so I I encourage you to read those two chapters. The church at Ephesus was infiltrated by the leaven of pride and accomplishment. They did it right. They focused on getting things right. They did it right. They got a lot of things right, but Jesus said, you've left your first love. What's your first love? There's all kinds of discussion about that. John's writing this. Jesus is dictating it. I think it goes back to what's the great commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The, the church in Ephesus, they had the doctrine right. They had the theology right. They tested false teachers and found out they were false. That's a good thing to do. But they were no longer loving God. They were no longer loving Christ. They were no longer loving each other. And Jesus says, you're in a bad place. The sense of pride and accomplishment has taken over for genuine faith and and love and devotion to God. The leaven of tolerance impacted the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira. They wanted to be progressive, open, big tent churches. If you went to them and talk to them you might have heard things like there's room for different points of view or no one has all the truth or we have to be open to the spirit's leading 
And as a result, they tolerated false teachers and false prophets. And the result of those false teachers and false prophets was sexual immorality and idolatry. It's not that the false teachers came in and said, you worship Jesus, that's cute. I have an idol and you can have all the sex you want. It's that the teaching they brought broke the search for holiness and the desire for holiness and faithfulness to the Lord. It encouraged this kind of thinking that said, it's all about me. It's about my heart. It's about my desires and what I want. And the end result of that was devastating. The church at Sardis was infected by the leaven of progressivism. Jesus says, you have forgotten what you received and heard. The first things of the gospel and of Christ were left in the dust. And they went on to other things. There's other things. There's bigger things. We don't need that anymore. We've gotten past that. We can focus on this instead. And Jesus says you're virtually dead. You're just virtually dead. He says you have a few who have not soiled their garments. You have a few who haven't bought into that. And, and I think that Jesus left that church awake and functioning for the sake of the few. Remember when Abraham went to him to pray for the city of Sodom and said, what if there's 50 righteous? And God said, I won't destroy it. And what if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? God says, I, if there's 10 righteous, I won't destroy it. It turned out there was only a lot. And God said, not enough. So there are enough righteous people in, in Sardis, enough faithful people in Sardis that God showed mercy to the rest, but he warns them. Jesus warns them. I'll shut you down. The church at Laodicea was infected by the leaven of pragmatism. They measured their success by their wealth and numbers. They said, we are blessed, we are enviable, we are rich and wise and clothed in glory. And Jesus said, no, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. And the worst part of it is you don't know it. That leaven of pragmatism, which is the belief that if something works, it's good, had infected them to the point where they were no longer faithful. There is nothing Christian about them. The spiritual leaven has continued in the church for the past 2,000 years. We still see churches infected with the leaven of pride and accomplishment, Several weeks ago during the Southern Baptist Convention, issues came up with Rick Warren's church, Saddleback, which is the biggest Southern Baptist church. By the way, I know some are new, some are visiting. I name names. There's no point in saying, you've got to beware of this teaching if I don't tell you who's teaching it. Last year, Rick Warren's church ordained three women in disobedience to Second, uh, 1 Timothy 2. Right before the conference this year, he announced that his successors would be a husband and wife team. The husband will be the senior pastor and the wife will be the teaching pastor in utter disobedience to 1 Timothy 2. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. It's crystal clear. And so there were people in the SBC calling for the expulsion of Saddleback Church if they're not going to follow the Baptist faith and message of 2000, which is their most recent guidelines, they shouldn't be Southern Baptists. Rick Warren got up and gave a seven-minute speech filled with his accomplishments. 
He made the comment in there that he has trained 1.1 million pastors. Some people did the math, and I don't know quite how they did it. Some came up with that means 40 a day. Some said that means 70 a day. I don't know how they divvied all that up. I think what he did is he took all the people who have subscribed to his newsletter and said, I've trained them, which is absurd. Every once in a while, uh, we record our messages. They go up. The video goes up. You can see the video at sermonaudio.com. Penny's got links on the website. It goes to a podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast for the audio. Every once in a while, I go look at the stats, who's, who's watching, who's listening. And uh, it, it's, it's amazed me. The last time I looked, it's been a few weeks, there was somebody in Singapore, Germany, had people, people in Ireland, uh, several in Canada, which I suppose might be people who know of us. But um, what if I said to you, I have an international ministry? Because somebody in Germany and somebody in Singapore and somebody in Australia listened. It'd be a lie. Pride and accomplishment is a leaven that destroys we still see churches infected with pragmatism. There's a large church in Orlando, Florida, that's become notorious uh, for baptizing homosexuals and transgenders and couples who are living together outside of marriage. They opened up a worship service, and the, the video is available on YouTube. They opened up a worship service with a sexualized dance routine featuring dancers in Star Wars Stormtroopers costumes. They're also Southern Baptist. But it works. They're packed. They're packed every week. It works. It works. It's wrong. See, we baptize homosexuals so that they don't feel rejected. No, you baptize homosexuals and now they believe that they're believers. And you're damning them because you're not giving them the gospel. The good news is only good news because the bad news is so bad. Another new leaven in our time is called moralistic therapeutic deism. That's, that's a mouthful, I know. Moralistic therapeutic deism teaches that God wants every to be as, everybody to be as happy as they can be and feel good about themselves and that he's not necessary unless you have problems being happy or feeling good about yourself. Then God's necessary. Joel Osteen is basically the the, the high priest of this thinking, but there are others. His wife opened a worship service a few years ago with these words. I just want to encourage every one of us to realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy, us being happy. So I, I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen? No, not amen. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Another newer leaven, I don't know if they had in the biblical times, is consumerism. It's the idea that personal satisfaction is the measure of everything. 
products and services have to meet your standard, you'll take your business elsewhere. It makes perfect sense if you're going to a restaurant. It's the wrong attitude when you're in a church because we're supposed to be family. And we rub each other the wrong way. If I haven't rubbed you the wrong way yet, I apologize. I'll get to you as soon as I can. But that's what we do. But we're family. Iron sharpens iron, but only if they're in contact with each other. Consumerism and pragmatism, by the way, are are opposite sides of the same coin. Pragmatism says we have to do anything that we can do to get those people in here, and the people that they're trying to get in there are the ones saying, if you'll give me the exact thing I want, I'll come. And so both sides bear responsibility. A final new leaven is cultural accommodation. Churches abandon biblical teachings because the culture objects to them, and the goal, after all, is to please the culture. I don't know if you saw this week, the Episcopal Church made some announcements. They denounced crisis pregnancy centers. They denounced them. They apologized for having supported crisis pregnancy centers in the past. And they called for access to abortion, quote, with no restriction on movement, autonomy, type, or timing, unquote. That means any kind of abortion at any time during the pregnancy. That's cultural accommodation. But it began in the Episcopal Church 50 or 60 years ago. And at the time, Episcopalians would not have supported the idea of abortion. But as soon as you begin accommodating what the culture wants, the culture never gives up. There's a a proverb that has to do with greed. It, It talks about the things that are never satisfied, like fire, like locusts says the leech has two daughters, give and give. More, 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 more. There's no such thing as enough. So Jesus commands his disciples to be watchful and wary. He does that in verse 6, and he does it in verse 11. That means he wants them to take special notice of a threat and keep their guard up. You understand that these leavens are not hypothetical. They're not theoretical. They exist. They impact churches. They will impact us if we don't keep our eyes out for them. They are out there. They do harm to the gospel today. And there's no excuse for ignoring them or letting them infiltrate. But we have to keep watch. We have to keep our eyes on them. Several years ago, Linda and I went uh, on a motorcycle trip with some friends to the Black Hills. It, uh, it rained every night. Fortunately, it didn't rain during the day, but it rained every night. And so first thing in the morning after we got some coffee, I would go out and I'd dry my motorcycle off and I'd clean it and I'd get it all pretty and nice and shiny. And 20, 30 minutes out there kind of on my knees on both sides and wiping and getting everything ready. One morning I'd done that and I went back in the cabin to, uh, to get ready for the ride. And, and just a few moments after I stepped back in the door and closed it, our friend pointed out the window and they said, well, look at that. And I looked out and on, on the garage facing the front of the house about 10 feet away up on the roof was a mountain lion. And I'd just been out there with my, on my knees with my back turned. It's one thing to not be aware of a danger. 
but I would have been a fool to go back out and get on my knees and turn my back on it. Once we knew that it was there, we watched it. We didn't go outside. It explored the yard. It ran down here toward the road. It came back, and eventually it went up the hillside. And when we finally went out to get on the bikes, we had our eyes glued. Our necks were on swivels. We watched the whole time. That's what being watchful and wary means. That's what we have to do. I spoke about the five churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that were infected with spiritual leaven. Two weren't. The church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. They faced suffering. They they faced tribulation. They faced poverty, false accusations, but they had remained faithful to the Lord. And Jesus says to them, continue to be faithful. Hold fast to what you have. And in the day that that is to come, I will give you the crown of life. You've done well. You've kept your eyes open. Keep keeping them open. You've resisted the infiltration of these ideas and these leavens. Keep resisting. Don't stop. Don't stop. Elders and pastors are commanded to keep watch over the flock. Part of that means identifying false teachers and teachings in order to protect the saints. That's why I name names. I understand that many pastors don't name names. They might step on somebody's toes. You might be reading a book by Bill Johnson of Bethel Church. You shouldn't. You could use it to start a fire. That'd be a good use for it. There are a lot of people that you simply should not be reading. If you have Jesus Calling by Sarah Young, I think it is, burn it. Burn it. In her first copy, she says in her introduction that she got this idea from a secular book on channeling, on listening to spirits and writing down what they say. The second edition of her book, they removed that statement because it was a little bit too much revealed. You have to watch. You have to watch. There were a few years when One Hope Fellowship was part of the Brian Fellowship of Churches. During that time, they got a new president. That new president introduced the Enneagram to the board and to the pastors. The Enneagram is a New Age, unbiblical teaching that's all about uh, self-fulfillment. They claim it's very old. It goes back prior to Christ. No, it was invented in the early 1900s, invented by a Russian mystic. He drew the drawings. He had these teachings. Somehow it, it eventually made its way down to Catholic mystics. And for some reason, evangelicals grabbed it, and they just went nuts with it. I investigated it. I'd never heard of it. I did a few hours of research, and then I wrote a response, and I sent it off to the president and the board, and they utterly rejected any idea that it was problematic and then marginalized me for the next six or eight months. And so we just eventually left. I can't trust somebody who's going to lead pastors who will expose them to ungodly things. But it's the job of every believer to keep their eyes open. Pastors and elders can't review everything. We can't see everything. And so here are some signs that a teaching is leavenous. That's a real word, by the way, leavenous. 
Levinus' teachings often claim to be new revelation. God showed me something new. No, he didn't. He didn't. Levinus' teachings often claim to be lost truths that have been restored to the church. They used to have this, but, you know, they're often based on the teacher's, uh, false teacher's personal experience or a private interpretation. Levinus' teachers often accuse critics of legalism, being closed to the Holy Spirit, or being judgmental. I've, I've heard all of those thrown at me and more. And Levinus' teachings often become wildly popular and they spread like wildfire. They, can, they usually fade almost as quickly. Fans of Levinus' teachers and teachings, here's a clue, are often obsessive and narrow-minded. It is all that they want to talk about. I've seen that in just about every church I pastored. Somebody gloms onto something new and odd, and that's all they've got time for. Fans of Levinus teachers and teachings often evangelize others to that point of view with an intensity that they never give the true gospel. They would not talk to a neighbor about Christ if the Lord told them he was coming back in five minutes. But the man in our church in California who thought he had the diet that Adam and Eve ate had to tell everybody, had to tell everybody. It's like the joke, how do you tell a vegan at a party? You don't need to, they tell you. <laughs> so when you see those, those kinds of indicators, you, you've, you've got you've to get your radar up. You've got to get your radar up. Now, a few years ago, I came across a book by a man named Graham Goldsworthy. He's a, a, an Australian pastor and theologian. It's called Prayer and the Knowledge of God. It is the best book on prayer I have ever read. It's about the only book on prayer I've ever read that didn't discourage me and shame me for not being a fantastic prayer warrior. It's a fantastic book, but it's not new. He goes through the scriptures in great detail and careful detail. So sometimes somebody who's excited about something they've not heard before, or they've not really understood before, that's legitimate. But if I was thumping that every week to you, you would every, every right by about the third week to go, wait a second. Have you forgotten? Are you forgetting the first things? Are you laying the scriptures aside? Let's bring this home. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Satan thrives on chaos and confusion. We are easily susceptible to things that confuse us and bring us chaos. James says in James 3.16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil practice. Jealousy and selfish ambition exist often come because leavens have come in that are growing and, and moving within us and within our midst. And Satan invents these lies that he then tries to knead spiritually into the church in order to cause confusion and chaos, in order to tempt us to jealousy and selfish ambition, to throw believers into disorder and every evil practice. Jesus commanded his disciples to be watchful and wary of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because that was what was going on at that time. 
he gives us this, the same command to be watchful and wary of the, the various kinds of spiritual leavens that exist everywhere in our world and in the Christian world. I promise you that if you consistently refuse these leavens, if you keep your eyes open, that you will be attacked and accused and insulted. I've been called narrow-minded. I've been told that I deny the work of the Holy Spirit. One woman told me I didn't believe there was a Holy Spirit because I didn't lift my hands during worship. And I said, I play guitar. Am I supposed to do a Jimi Hendrix thing? What's... I've been told I put God in a box. I've been told that I'm not open to what God is doing. Let me promise you something. What God is doing today, he's been doing for 2,000 years. You don't need to fear missing out on something. The constant call of scripture is for us to be faithful, steadfast. Hold on to what you've received. Father, we thank you for your love for us and your kindness to us. Thank you for your word, for the clarity of it and the power of it. We could, we could all name a number of these different kinds of movements and fads that we've seen people get involved with. Uh, some of them, that's just what they do. They move from fad to fad. Others, it, it surprises us that they would have fallen for something. We understand that our own neediness and our own ignorance, our own desire for peace and our desire for satisfaction and contentment can cause us to become disgruntled and dissatisfied and, and suddenly we become vulnerable. Please help us to keep our eyes open. Please help us to help guard one another and to warn others when we see someone moving in a, an unhealthy direction. I thank you that you have given us in your word everything that we need for life and godliness. There's not a truth that we need that is not in your word. And in the Holy Spirit, you have provided all the power that we need to implement those truths, to live in faith and obedience. So I ask that you would help us to keep the word under our feet with a firm foundation that we would be faithful to you and grow in that faithfulness. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We are dismissed. Prayer in the knowledge of God. Graham. Goldsworthy, G, I think it's G R A E M E.